Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and we are in the heart of Amsterdam, aren't we, Tom? Now, if you didn't hear our last episode, we are exploring the history of Amsterdam with WISE. Now, Tom, as you will know, WISE is the international account that is built to save you money around the world. You love that, don't you, Tom? 150 countries. I do. 40 currencies and just one account. And as you are always saying to me, I mean, God almighty, if I had a pound All bet, the time. The number of times you've said this to me. With WISE, you can spend like a local. And Dominic, more importantly, you could spend like a Dutch capitalist in the golden age of Amsterdam. So Dominic, uh, at the end of the last episode, we were talking about um, Amsterdam as simultaneously this inward-looking and this outward-looking city. Yeah. So this concern with the domestic, with the interior kind of privacy, while at the same time, Amsterdam is... Uh, really the kind of the great smithy of what will become European globalization. Right. Expanding trade networks, um, all the wealth and goods and commodities of the world coming to Amsterdam. So the people here are, you know, certainly the elites are fabulously rich. So Amsterdam is absolutely a boom town. So it's the 17th century. We're it's talking the 17th about. century. But the Dutch Republic is still at war. You know, the, the Spanish are still out there. Yeah. And so the old center of Amsterdam is is kind of girded around by this canal, the single, and by a wall. And basically, you know, you're, you're not encouraged to build out beyond that. But people ignore that. They're camping out on what remains basically a bog. Yeah. Um, the, the Amstel literally means, you know, <laughs> boggy land next to a river. Um, and the land beyond the old town hasn't yet been drained. Amsterdam is, is becoming so rich and it's becoming so full that over the course of the 17th century, people decide this is insane. We need to expand. So they start to move beyond the single, this canal that surrounds the, the old town. And they build what are probably the iconic image of Amsterdam in people's imagination. If they kind of think of Amsterdam, they will think of these three great ring canals that were built in the 17th century. So the Herrengracht, yeah. So uh, that's the canal for gentlemen. The gentlemen's, gentlemen's canal. canal. The Kaisersgracht, the emperor's emperor's um, canal, and the, the Prinzengracht, the prince's canal. Yeah. And we are standing on the Herrengracht. Yeah. Which is the most exclusive of those three canals. And just to um, compete with the traffic, and to paint a picture for those people who haven't been to Amsterdam, forget about the traffic noise. It's an idyllic scene. These tremendously impressive kind of merchants' townhouses. Uh, along the sides of the canal, um, sort of bicycles and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, and where we're standing is called the Golden Bend. So it's the the most prestigious stretch of the most prestigious canal. Yeah. And the amazing thing about these three canals, that they look perfect. And tr people have always thought, historians of the development of Amsterdam, have always traditionally thought that there is a kind of a master plan. Yeah. But it turns out actually there probably wasn't, that it was built in three separate stages which makes the site kind of the sense of coherence, the, um, the controlled sense of beauty, all the more extraordinary. I mean, it's one of the, the great urban panoramas of Europe and the world, I would say. 
And what makes it all the more extraordinary is, as I say, the effort of construction, because all these stunning houses, the roads, all the infrastructure is built on the marshiest terrain imaginable. And so the reason that there are canals, they, these have to be kind of dredged out. The mud has to be piled up on the banks, has to be mixed with, um, with sand and with gravel. Roads have to be laid down with brick. And if you're going to build houses, then you need to, um, you need to kind of drive down wood, great piles of wood. Yeah. So logs that are sourced from Scandinavia. And they have to be jammed down kind of 50, 60 feet into the peat, into the sand, into the clay. And those logs are still there to this day because they've been covered over by water. So they, the, the, the wood has been preserved. Yeah. And it was such an effort to build these. that one of the reasons why these houses are very high, kind of five, six stories, is that basically if you've gone to all the expense and, e and effort of driving down these kind of piles to support the, the houses on, you might as well build it high. Yeah. Yeah. And so throughout the 17th century, you know, it's the golden age. It's the age of Rembrandt. It's the age of kind of scientific inquiry. And we look around and this is a beautiful, beautiful urban cityscape. But throughout the 17th century, this was a massive, massive building site. I mean, ongoing for right. decades and decades and decades. And I think that one of the, one of the ways in which you can measure what the impact was of, of, of this on people who lived in Amsterdam is to look at the paintings and the drawings of Rembrandt, its greatest artist, the artist who, who moved and lived here for most of his life. And what you will find is that he doesn't actually paint or draw anything of what is going on with this new development. So again and again, if he's making sketches of the cityscape, he will do views towards the old city or towards the open fields. Mm -hmm. He will not sketch what is being developed. It's almost like he's literally turned his back on this new... I suppose the equivalent of the megalopolises of uh, 21st yeah. century China. Temples to capitalism. Absolutely. So there's a sense that, um, that Rembrandt and his attitude to this new architecture is a bit of a King Charles III. Right. Okay. <laughs> he's, not, he's not in favour of it. But clearly, if you're a, a massive high-spending capitalist with lots of cash, you're really into it. And so the house that we're looking at at the moment is one of the grandest, most impressive, most beautiful houses on the entire stretch of the Herengracht. And this is the house van der Graaf. So this is the mayor of Amsterdam's house. Andries, what's his name? Andries, Andries de, Graaf. de Graaf. Yeah. Yes. He was a mayor of the city. He was one of its richest men. And he's one of um, two brothers who basically run um, Amsterdam as a republican form of government throughout its golden age. So Tom... Just as we uh, start talking about the politics, let's uh, let's move away from the man assembling an air conditioning unit. Um, <laughs> it's always right the by, way, isn't right it? By where it's we're always talking. the way. So at this point, the Netherlands is the Dutch Republic. It is not a monarchy. Am I right? Right. So basically, there are two kind of political factions in the various provinces that constitute the Dutch Republic. So there's a Republican faction of which the um, the De Graaf brothers are leaders in Amsterdam. There are also the De Witts in the Hague and. These are kind of the equivalents of grand senators, leaders of what are effectively city-states. But over and above that, you have the figure of the Stadtholder, which is, has become a kind of hereditary post held by the descendants of, of William the Silent, Willem of Orange, right. um, who was the great hero of the Dutch Revolt. And so the Stadtholders are, well, I suppose actually, Dominic, that the, the the best English translation would be Lord Protector. Oh, very good. You know I love a Lord Protector. Yes, I know you do. So there's a tension there between the, the claims of the cities and the claims of the Stadtholder. Of the House of Orange. So these tensions come to a head in Amsterdam in 1650, when um, Willem II, who is the Stadtholder, the Prince of Orange, 
Um, he comes to Amsterdam and he basically tries to kind of conquer it and suppress the pretensions of the of the town council. The de Graffs play a blinder. They basically say to Willem, look, um, we're on your side. Uh, there are people opposed to you on the town council. Let's get rid of them. And they serve up their rivals on the town council, get rid of oh, them. Good, and then yeah. they're able to install them. And with enormous stroke of luck that obviously to the de Graffs would be the sign of God, um, Willem then, then dies of smallpox. Right. And he leaves a very young son, Willem, again, they're right. not very original with their naming, who will be the William III who conquers England in 1688. Okay. Yeah. But he's a very young boy at this point. Yeah. So essentially the de Graffs now have a kind of free hand to run the city. And they do this up until 1672, which the Dutch commemorate as the Rampjaar, the year of disasters, which is when there's a, a Louis XIV invades the English, I'm afraid to say, um, institute a naval blockade. Afraid to say. The De Witt brothers are lynched um, and, according to some stories, devoured by a hostile mob. Villain III kind of absolutely establishes his authority as Stadtholder. Uh, the De Graffs lose power. But um, Andries de Graff doesn't, I mean, he, he keeps his life, he keeps his wealth, and he keeps this um, absolutely splendid house. So we are looking at the house right now, aren't we? Um, there's a bit of scaffolding, but you can see the tremendous coat of arms at the top, which is this sort of swan and it looks like a bit like a mushroom. I don't know what it is. No, it's a, it's, um, it's a shovel. A shovel, okay. And the, the, the motto of de Graff was, um, death makes scepters and hoes equal. Okay. So this is the idea that, you know, the... Um, his house is built on the side of this canal, which has been dug with hoes and with shovels and with spades. And he's kind of glorying in that as something that is greater than the monarchical pretensions of the House of Orange. Um, he also, inside, he had one of the greatest art collections of the age. So we've, we've mentioned Rembrandt. He had Rembrandt's in there. Rembrandt painted him, um, but, but various other um, artworks by the, 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 the great painters of the age. So on one level, it's absolutely sumptuous and splendid. Yeah. But on the other, bearing in mind that this isn't, you know, he's, he's not just one of the richest men in Amsterdam. Yeah. He's one of the richest men in the world. Yeah. He is a plutocrat on a scale of a kind of Jeff Bezos. And by or, those standards, it's, Mark actually, Zuckerberg. it's actually pretty modest. Yeah. So that is actually the most striking thing about this, I think. So there are working class districts being built at the same time. So there's a place called Jordan, which is kind of beyond the Prinzengracht, which is, yeah. which is the canal for merchants. It's a lovely area, actually, Jordan now, Tom. Yeah, it is. But I think one of the striking things about this is that the, the streets that kind of join the canals are actually, they were built as much more working class areas. So it's exclusive, but it's not completely exclusive right um it's not a kind of upper class ghetto right and again i think that that is expressive of this dutch sense of kind of civic community that is a contrast with the kind of grandiose pomposity of architecture particularly in france right absolutist monarchy catholic monarchy of louis the 14th there must be a self-consciously deliberate political contrast the Dutch see themselves as Protestants, as uh, as you said, civic, as modest, yeah, modest, yes, yeah, absolutely. And so, looking at the you know this crest that you've mentioned that's on the top of this, and it does look, I mean, it looks very splendid, but yeah. it's, it's nothing compared to the coat of arms that you get at Versailles or anything no. like that, or indeed, you know, in the palaces in in England, you get these crests and these emblems all over the city. So, as scribes, for instance, you'll see a hand with a quill, right? Or uh, when we came here with when I came here with Sadie, my 
wife, she's a midwife. She was very excited to see that there was a stork outside a house, right. you know, emblem of a, a, yeah. a midwife who lived there. And my, my favorite one of all. So there is um, one of these secret churches that we talked about in the, uh, in, in the first episode. Um, it was a remonstrant church, so another kind of Protestant sect on the Kaisersgracht. And uh, they bought this building from a guy called Ruthut, which means red hat. Yeah. And so um, they advertised this completely secret church by whacking a, an emblem of a great red hat on right. it. So, so that's splendid. And what you will also see on lots of these houses, and particularly the houses on the Prinzengracht, but also on the Herrengracht and the Kaisersgracht yeah. as well, is that at the top of the houses, so where the crest is on the, the Graf's house, you will see kind of hoist beams. Right, and hooks. Now, I was going to ask you about the hooks. So what's all that about? Warehouses or their yes, stuff? Yes, particularly on the Princeton Grack. So for merchants, their houses double as storehouses and warehouses. And so stuff will be lifted up. Right. And um, they will keep stuff right at the top of the house. But they're not just warehouses, right? So they're not just public spaces. They're private. I mean, we talked last time about the Begeinhof and this inward-looking sense of privacy and domesticity. And that's true of these houses as well, isn't it? Yes, because the wealth that these merchants have and these kind of great princes of the city enables them to construct within a single domestic space the kind of inward turning, the love of privacy that um, in the Middle Ages had been confined within squares. Um, and so whether it is a, a great kind of, you know, a mayor of the city like Andres de Graaf or whether it is a kind of much more modest house, Amsterdam in the 17th century, in its domestic architecture, is, is committing itself to something that is really novel and incredibly influential. The idea that a house can be a private and personal space. And this is the ideal that I know that both of us have been to see the Vermeer exhibition, which yeah. is on at the Rijksmuseum here in Amsterdam at the moment. And famously, Vermeer is, you know, in his paintings, is kind of articulating this sense. And it's the same sense that in the episode that we did on the, the Dutch maid, the housemaids, yeah. you know, English and foreign visitors, when they come here and they walk into the house and the housemaid has just spent all day cleaning the floor and she will attack visitors with her broom and forcibly <laughs> remove their shoes right. so that they don't spread dirt in. This obsession with cleanliness, the obsession with kind of scrubbing, it's something incredibly momentous. I mean, basically, it's the birth of the, the bourgeois domestic ideal. Right that middle classes across the West and indeed increasingly across the world are now wedded to. And it has its birth here in Amsterdam. Okay, let's move on to the next location in just a second. So we are going to be moving on to the Royal Palace now. Very exciting. So let's right. go there. Right. So I mentioned how you know these houses on the canals need a lot of wooden support. The Royal Palace, which is back on Dam Square. I mean, that really does require an awful lot of wood. And we'll go and look at it now. So, Tom, you were just talking to me about wood. That was very exciting. <laughs> I was. Um, and we've moved back to um, Dam Square. Where we began. And we're facing this enormous building. And I believe you're going to say, talk to me some more about wood. Yes. So this, this was the, um, the town hall that was opened by Andres de Graaf's brother, Cornelis. Right. Um, on the 29th of July, 1655. And when it was built, it was by miles the largest building in Amsterdam. Yeah. In fact, it was one of the largest buildings in Europe. I think St. Peter's in Rome, the Escorial, yeah. the Dojal Palace in Venice. in Venice, were basically the only buildings that could rival it. So it's a very, very large kind of 17th century palace, well, basically. Even that, it's pretty monumental. I yeah, mean, it is. And the total number of wood required to support this, because it's basically floating on a bog, 
Right. There's 13,659 pieces of Scandinavian timber. Right, crikey. And this was the town hall. So it was a monument not to a, a king or a, or a royal family, no. but to sort of civic virtue. To civic virtue. And so inside, it is decorated with all kinds of impu- improving um, murals. So you've got scenes from classical history, obviously scenes from the Bible, illustrating patriotic sacrifice, incorruptibility, civic yeah. virtue, lots of comparisons being made between Amsterdam and ancient Israel. Well, that's one thing you haven't mentioned that I was going to ask you about. So people in the Dutch Republic, they do have a, a sense of themselves as a kind of chosen people, Completely. don't they? Yeah. Yes, absolutely they do. And, and also it's rather like the East India House, which is situating Amsterdam as the kind of the center of the turning world. Yeah. This is made manifest inside the, the city hall because you have a great map of the world there with Amsterdam absolutely at its center. And this building becomes the emblem for the greatness, the wealth, the power of Amsterdam right. and of the Dutch Republic more generally. And so there's a, a famous encomium that is given by a, a, a palpably very, very um, jealous Englishman, a man called William Alginby, who was a fellow of the Royal Society in the mid-17th century, who said that scarce any subject occurs more frequent in the discourse of ingenious men than that of the marvellous progress of this little state, which in the space of about a hundred years hath grown to a height not only infinitely transcending all the ancient republics of Greece, but not much inferior in some respects, even to the greatest monarchies of these later ages. The irony is, Tom, that at precisely this moment, the 1650s, and then the 1660s and so on. The Dutch are fighting wars against the English, winning some of them. And the French in due course. And the French. Yeah. But of course, they are about to be uh, outstripped by the marvelous progress <laughs> of an even more admirable state. Am I wrong? <laughs> well, so the English in particular are incredibly jealous of the Dutch. So we have had occasion before to speak of the disgraceful behavior of the Dutch fleet in raiding the um, naval dockyards yeah. at Chatham, Chatham, the Medway. Battle the raid Medway. on the Medway. So there, there is absolutely Anglo-Dutch rivalry throughout the, the 1650s under Cromwell, throughout the 1660s under Charles II. And then, of course, under James II, who's a Catholic, the Stadtholder, William III, who we talked about um, while we were standing outside uh, Andres de Graaf's house. Yes. You know, he's a little boy um, when his dad dies of smallpox. But by 1688, he's the most impressive Protestant leader in Europe. And basically, 1688... He launches an invasion of England. Yeah. Uh, he occupies London. And it's effectively a merger between Amsterdam and London, yeah. between the two great capitalist engines. It's not really a conquest, is it? In the set, I mean, he's been invited by kind of Whig oligarchs. And there is a real sense of a kind of merger of the sort of the wealth, the manpower, the resources of England, the naval resources and so on, with the nous, the financial innovations. The, the sort of civic culture, the the ambition of the Dutch. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you see the influence of Dutch in all kinds of English maritime words. So yacht is a Dutch word, right? blunderbuss, schooner, all that kind of thing. So the influence of Dutch capitalism and Dutch globalism on the English is enormous, both as an inspiration and as a kind of rivalry. And so uh, basically by the, the late 17th, going into the 18th century, there's a sense in which the English are doing to the Dutch what the Dutch had um, done to the Portuguese. That's karma, Tom. But let me, I want to ask you, we're in Amsterdam. We've been talking about Amsterdam. But what about New Amsterdam? So that's what becomes New York. So is that 
a kind of symbol of that. How that yeah, goes from... absolutely. Because New Amsterdam is a Dutch settlement, yeah, but gets lost to the English by terms of a treaty that ends one of the kind of perennial Anglo-Dutch wars and becomes New York. So that's the perfect kind of illustration of this process whereby the Dutch East India Company, also on the other side of the world, is increasingly put under the shadow in, in India of the, right. the British East India Company. So in the 18th century, Holland is regressing, isn't it? It's falling down the table of world powers. It is, but there's a sense in which, I mean, it's still f fabulously rich. It's still very, very significant center. But I think it is coming to seem less exceptional. Right. So the path blazed by the Dutch is one that others are now following. Yeah. I mean, one way in which in which the Netherlands and, and Amsterdam in particular does remain incredibly significant is that the tradition that was there right the way through the 16th and 17th centuries of this being a place where you could say and think and publish things that you couldn't do anywhere else. Yeah. That remains a very, very kind of vivid tradition. The paradigmatic figure who illustrates that is Spinoza, a Jew Great who famously yeah. gets kind of excommunicated by the Jewish community here in Amsterdam yeah. and whose writings, they like the touch paper to, um, to what Jonathan Israel, the great historian of, of early modern Netherlands and the Enlightenment, has called the radical Enlightenment. So throughout the 18th century, books that, that are incredibly scandalous. So the most, the most notorious is um, a book called The Three Impostors. And The Three Impostors are Moses, Jesus and Muhammad. Right, and that's published in Amsterdam. And really, I mean, it's the only place where you could publish it. Yeah. And that's drawing on the legacy of Amsterdam, not just as a great capitalist entrepot, but it's a place where people from other countries come to explore and express ideas that can't be explored and expressed elsewhere. Yeah. So Descartes, we've mentioned already, Descartes Tom, spends... They're, they're loving you. The they love it, yes. over there. Descartes comes here. <laughs> um, Thomas Hobbes is published here. Um, Locke comes here. Yeah. So th there is absolutely a sense in which this remains kind of in intellectual terms, you know, in incredibly important. And so when in the second half of the 18th century, you get first the American Revolution and then the French Revolution, there is a sense in the part of people in Amsterdam who feel, well, this is an expression of, of stuff that we started. Right. But then they end up fighting the French. Then they the French invade in, what, 1795? Well, actually kind of less than you would think because there's such enthusiasm first for the American cause um, against the British. Yeah. Very shameful behavior on the part of the, of the Amsterdamers. Yeah. But then in, in, the, in the French Revolution, large numbers of people in Amsterdam are on the side of the French revolutionaries to the degree that the, the Stadtholder, who's still you know, a, a descendant of William the Silent, yeah. um, the House of Orange, he goes into exile in England and... Um, Dutch revolutionaries in Amsterdam pr proclaim a republic. So it becomes the Batavian Republic after the oh, Batavians, yes. who are the kind of the ancient people who lived in this vicinity um, back in the early Roman times. And uh, the French invade, the Dutch revolutionaries rise up, and it's a little bit like 1688 in reverse. It's both an invasion and a, and a revolution and a merger. So the Batavian Republic is, is proclaimed in, um, in January 1795. And... The Dutch welcome the French to Amsterdam by hanging tricolors over the over the canals. So, hurrah for the Republic! Right. You know, the Dutch have this indigenous tradition of republicanism that doesn't actually need the French to inspire them. But the French, I'm afraid, then um, behave very badly. Um, <laughs> you astound me. Tom. They badly let the Dutch republicans down. 
because in 1806, Napoleon installs his younger brother, Louis, as king. Oh, yes, yeah. And so <laughs> Louis moves into the city hall, the town hall. Oh, the building over there, there which is the yeah. great emblem of the of Dutch republicanism. Yeah. And he turns it into the royal palace. Of course he does. He's actually surprisingly popular. So he he goes to great lengths to learn Dutch. Yeah. And everybody who's shown me around Amsterdam always tells the same story. My Dutch probably isn't up to up to recycling it. But apparently his Dutch was um was was very bad. I mean, who am I to cast a stone? Um <laughs> And he described himself as Koenig van Holland rather than Koenig van Holland. So this apparently is hilarious because apparently it means he was calling himself the rabbit of Holland. I genuinely heard someone saying that in the street yesterday. Right. Okay. To a group of tourists. <laughs> so it's a great story. So clearly this is the one Dutch story. <laughs> About Louis Napoleon. Yeah. So he became himself a rabbit rather than the king. And he, he was such a good king that he got called Louis the Good. Right. I mean, so he sets up the museum that in the long run will become the Rijksmuseum. Oh, uh, see. So the yeah. Rijksmuseum is founded by a Frenchman, which is really something yeah. <laughs> that generally isn't. Theo, our producer, loves this. Yeah, he's he, nodding away. He, he purports to be French. But um, but Napoleon is very contemptuous of this title that, that Louis Napoleon gets, of Louis the, the Good, um, and says that, brother, when they say of some king or other that he is good, it means that he has failed in his rule. I'm with Napoleon on that, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, but I think Napoleon is saying this because in 1810, he, he basically abolishes the kingdom of, of the Netherlands. Just absorbs and it into France. It just absorbs so. it into France. So Amsterdam right. becomes yeah. part of Greater France. Um, and then in 1813, Napoleon's empire is collapsing. The French withdraw. Willem comes back from exile, the Stadtholder, yes. and is proclaimed king. So he's the first Dutch king. So the city hall remains the royal palace, and it, it, it is the royal palace to this day. Uh, 19th century, things speed up. But Tom, you know what you haven't talked about? What? That the Dutch never talk about. What? Because they're ashamed. What? The loss of Belgium. So the Belgian Revolution, when the Belgians cast off Dutch oppression. But it's nothing really to do with Amsterdam, is it? Well, it's the dark side of the, uh, the Dutch <laughs> character, isn't it? No. They were such hideous overlords that the Belgians no, not couldn't, at all. couldn't take it. Everything in, in um, 19th century Amsterdam, it's still very liberal, Dominic. Very progressive. So the first um, railway station is built in... Um, I'm going to put my cards on the table, Tom. I actually prefer Belgium to Holland. I think the food is God's better. Sake. I think the food is better in Belgium. I love Belgium, but I... The chips are better in Belgium. I love Holland better. Holland has a better name. <laughs> Go, <ahead. laughs> Go on. Finish your... Finish your okay. <laughs> okay. So, so railways. First Dutch railway they built in 1839. Well. I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. So actually, although they're built later, the, the Rijksmuseum and the Railway Central Station yep. Yep. are both built by a Catholic. Are they? Yeah. So if you like Belgium, are you art galleries and um, yep. railway stations built by Catholics? Yeah. Amsterdam's got them too. So, okay. so there you go. 1848, we talked about with Christopher Clark and our... He sang about it. He did, yes. That this, this kind of liberal revolution basically establishes the Dutch constitution that, yes. that survives to this day. So the day. Dutch have, at this point, they have a, they're a monarchy. They are, and they're still a monarchy. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Were it not for the French Revolution and Napoleon, yeah. Yeah. that they would still be a republic. Yeah. So the French Revolution results in the city palace becoming the royal palace. The irony. Yeah. And then it becomes one of these European cities that are kind of motors of international capitalism and industrialized capitalism in the, in yeah, the late 19th century. Yeah, so the Dutch have always remained, you know, they've always been a very commercial people, a polite and commercial people. Yes. And really where we're sitting now in Dam Square yeah. is the perfect exemplification of that. The beehive. The beehive. The beehive. The beehive. Tom. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Neither of us, by the way, speak Dutch. But do address all your, as I've already said, address all your remarks to Tom, please, not to me. 
So it's founded in um, 1870 as a haberdashery store, but it's rebuilt in 1909, basically to be the Dutch Selfridges. And in fact, it is owned today by the Selfridges Group. Now, Tom, I do like a I do like a department store, and I also like a trinket or knickknack or souvenir. A clog, a I'd windmill, like to get a miniature windmill. Uh, That's what yeah. I'd like to get. So Some cheese wrapped up in red wax. Shall we go over there right now? Let's go and do that. And do you have um, perhaps? A card. I've got my Wise card. Your Wise card. My Wise app, gonna... actually. I'm going to be using the app on my phone. I heartily recommend it to all our listeners. Let's go and do that right now. So, Tom, here we are. In, we've actually gone to a different place. We've gone to 100% Holland. You chose this shop for narcissistic reasons. It, it literally reasons. had my name on it. Had your name on it. Now, we've selected this lovely tin of Holland waffles. Uh, Stroopwafel, I think they call them. I'm going to pay for them, Tom, with something very exciting. I'm going to pay for them with my Wise app. Because the thing about WISE, you can spend in 40 different currencies. And if you're on the go, as you so often are with your travels, and you don't have the local currency in your WISE account, Tom, they will auto-convert it at the mid-market exchange rate with absolutely no markups and no hidden fees. Because I hate a markup and I hate a hidden fee. Well, you, you don't so have to worry. Wise, WISE is the card for me. You're in 100% Holland. You've got your WISE thing. No markups. You're laughing. I literally couldn't be happier. Right. <laughs> Brilliant. Everybody's happy. Let's go and pay for these waffles. <laughs> Hello. I'd like to pay for these lovely waffles, please. Uh, yes, please. Thank you. Just going to pay with my Wise app here. That was incredibly convenient, Dominic. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Bill. No markups, no hidden charges. Wonderful. That's probably the best transaction I think I've ever done. So, Tom, we've just moved uh, 10 minutes down the road, and we were talking about uh, the Beehive, the Bayenkorf, and the founder of that uh, haberdashery store. The interesting thing about him, Simon Philipp Goudschmidt, he was Jewish. He was, as um, by the 1930s, almost 15% of the population was Jewish. Right. So there were 80,000 in Amsterdam, and the roots of the Jewish population in Amsterdam go back as so much does in this city to the 17th century. Right, you amaze me. Um, so you remember that in the first part, we were talking about how uh, the Beguines and the Anabaptists and the Mennonites and the Remonstrants and all these various guys are setting up their own communities and the Calvinist city authorities are kind of legalizing them, kind of not. Yes, They're kind yes. of operating. And the same approach is brought to Jewish settlers. And the word gets out to Jews in the Iberian Peninsula, Sephardic Jews, as they're called. Yeah. And particularly from Portugal, they start moving to Amsterdam. Because this is, of course, the moment at which in Spain and Portugal, the authorities are moving very aggressively against yeah. local Jews. So obviously, Amsterdam must seem, by comparison, a haven of tolerance. Completely. Um, so in contrast to the Inquisition that you're getting in Portugal, here, within a few years of, of um, Jews being allowed to settle here, they are allowed to worship openly and freely. So they, they, they can stop pretending to be kind of Christian yeah. and, and openly practice Judaism. And more and more numbers of, of Jews from Portugal come here. And the, the area that we're in, we're just down from the house that, um, that Rembrandt bought, just a few minutes walk down from there. And um, this became one of, it, it, 
it was kind of like little Lisbon. Everyone here speaking in Portuguese. And um, some very famous names came from this community. One of them, Manasseh ben Israel, is the rabbi who went to London yep. to convince Cromwell to allow Jews to return to England. Yep. Yep. They'd been expelled by Edward I. Yes. He's very successful. And probably the most famous name of all is um, Spinoza, the great philosopher who yep. we mentioned um, a little bit earlier, the hero of the radical enlightenment. But just going back to Manasseh ben Israel, the, um, the guy who gets the Jews into London, Bevis Marx, which is the first Jewish synagogue to be opened in London in the 17th century, is yeah. it's rather like the Beginhof. There's a doorway on a kind of city street, and you wouldn't know what was inside unless you went there. Right. But the place that I've brought you to is very, very different because the synagogue here, Portuguese synagogue, as it's still called, the Ezenoga, mm -hmm. is on a massive scale. It couldn't be less like the Beginhof because it's, it's not inward looking. It's a huge monumental building. I mean, huge and monumental by any standards, but certainly by the standards of 17th century yeah. Amsterdam. Yeah. I mean, um, so this is what, 1675, something like that? Completed in 1675. And it's designed to look like Solomon's Temple. So it's modeled on the, the proportions um, given for Solomon's Temple in right. the Bible. Inside, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it has this massive um, barrel vaulted ceiling, um, candles everywhere. Um, it, back in the 17th century, the floor was made of sand. Um, so an incredible statement about basically how confident the Jews were in the tolerance of the city that had given them host. Yes. That they could advertise their presence in this way. Without fearing any backlash. Without, you without know. fearing any backlash. Right. Yeah. And nothing in Dutch life since the 17th century gives them any reason to think that that will change. I mean, they're in incredibly well integrated. Yes. But of course, notoriously, and the one thing that everyone around the world knows about what happens in Amsterdam in the war is that the Germans invade and the Jews suffer terrible persecution because of the iconic figure of, of, Anne, of Frank. Anne Frank. Right. So I was wondering why you hadn't picked Anne Frank's house as one of, the, as one of your destinations. But obviously this building tells the story just as well. Um, and it's more surprising choice. I think it is. This is well, testament to the success and the integration of Jews into Dutch life. Yeah, so so the sense of this being a ghetto, I mean, this was very much where where Jews had settled um in the uh, in the in the seventeenth century. But by the nineteen forties, they've scattered out across Amsterdam. So the Franks would be yeah. an obvious example of that. They live out beyond the canals. And so you might think that that would make it difficult for the Nazis to um to round the Jews up, but unfortunately not. Basically because of, of two distinctive features of life in Amsterdam right. and, and the Netherlands more generally. One of which is that as society in the Netherlands becomes kind of more culturally complex, less monolithically Calvinist, they develop this concept that in English is called pillarization, this idea that there are different pillars, so Catholic, Calvinist, um, whatever, socialist, uh, yeah. liberal, that society is considered forming different pillars and that therefore you are catalogued and categorized as belonging to one of these particular pillars. And each pillar has its own institutions, right? So it's yes. kind of vertical, yeah. sort of vertical integration. So it has its own newspapers, schools, yes. banks, um, radio stations, and the Jews are cataloged on, in, in the socialist pillar. Right. So confirming the Nazis' darker suspicions yeah. of the Jews. And that means that they 
because they're catalogued, their addresses are on file and they're marked as being Jewish. Oh, right. Crikey. Okay. And the other thing is that um, the Netherlands has Europe's most counterfeit-proof identity card. Right, so you can't So again, there's, yeah. there's kind of no escape. Now, the process by which the Nazis start to persecute the Jews is gradual. So the Germans declare war on the, on the Netherlands on the 9th of May, 1940. Yeah. I mean, the Dutch, they don't have tanks. They have two cyclist regiments. Sorry, they have, I saw, I saw, <laughs> cyclist a, battalions. I saw a, uh, a slideshow in the Anne Frank house. They had two tanks, the uh, guide said, one of which was broken. Yeah. And they had a regiment of, yeah, these regiments of cyclists who looked... Who were incredibly brave. Right. I mean, they suffered terrible casualties. Yeah. And of course, the reason that the Netherlands surrenders is that Rotterdam gets, the center of Rotterdam gets bombed. Yeah. And the surrender is basically, I suppose, what saves Amsterdam, because otherwise um, the same fate might have been visited on Amsterdam. So the, the Germans occupy Amsterdam on the 15th of May. So that's, you know, less than a week after the declaration yes. of war. And to begin with, because the Dutch are seen as being Aryan, they are part of the racial community that the Nazis are celebrating, the repression in the Netherlands is, is not as bad as it might have been. And even Jews are not immediately targeted. So there's that famous footage, again, I'm sure you must have seen it in the Anne Frank house, of the wedding party. And, Which is waving and, from a yeah, window. She's waving from a window. So it's, it's possible for, for Jews to be seen in public. But there's this kind of classic ratchet effect you know yeah. jewish teachers get dismissed and then counselors and more and more prohibitions get uh, get brought accelerated in. version of what they'd already done in germany i suppose completely but one of the most striking things that happens in amsterdam one of the most heroic episodes in the entire history of the city is marked by a statue over there uh, i'll just point it's kind of large I mean, a fat-looking gentleman. Yeah, sturdy, I a think. Sturdy gentleman, yes. And this is a statue of a, a docker, a worker, um, to commemorate uh, the extraordinary thing that happened in February 1941 when the unions in Amsterdam staged a general strike. And in part, this was a protest against Dutch citizens in general being moved to Germany to, um, to do forced labor. But it was also specifically a protest against, um, against what was happening to the Jews. So Louis de Jong, uh, historian of Amsterdam, describes this as the first and only anti-pogrom strike in human history. Right. Um, and of course, it's, it's a strike that is held by people who assume that the authorities will play by rules that have been laid down in Dutch society for many, many decades. Yeah. But the Nazis are not playing yeah. by these rules. Um, and indeed, the, the structures of bureaucracy are there to be exploited, not to be followed. Well, because there are a lot of people who collaborate with the Nazis, though, aren't there? I mean, of course. When Anne Frank is finally, when the Franks are finally shipped off to the camps, it's because of when the Dutch police are involved with that. Yeah, and actually, Jews in in Amsterdam also become complicit. You know, they're 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 kind of forced into this awful situation. It's a bit like in the two episodes we did with Jonathan Friedland. Yeah, Jews in positions of authority are trying to negotiate with the Nazis but are basically being kind of drawn to collaborate. And because the Nazis have access to all these files, these addresses, the identity cards, it's incredibly difficult for Jews to escape. And so hence Anne Frank hiding in the attic. Yeah. But the fact is, is that of all the countries occupied by the Nazis, the Jews in the Netherlands had the lowest survival rate. So three out of four Jews who are living in the Netherlands, Jewish, Dutch men and women and children, die, don't they? They're taken to the camps. So that population of 80,000 
58,000 are killed. Right. And obviously the, the, the scale of the human tragedy, which has been so profoundly articulated by the survival of Anne Frank's diary, gives yeah. a human face to it. So the horror of, of, of what happens to the Jews is personalized in Amsterdam in a way that perhaps it isn't in any other city occupied by the Nazis. I don't know whether you'd agree. No, I would agree with that. Yeah. But I think on, on top of that, what gives it an extra dimension of horror is that basically Nazism is pretty much the opposite of everything we've been describing that characterizes the civilization of Amsterdam in the modern period. Internationalist, liberal, tolerant, uh, yeah. let live kind of approach, yeah. which the Nazis are having none with. And for Amsterdam, what sets the final seal on the horrors of the war years is that in the, the winter of 1944 and 45, when the rest of Europe in, in the West, so France and Belgium and so on, have been liberated. Holland isn't liberated. Yeah. You know, it's a bridge too far, the failure of, of uh, the Battle of Arnhem. Yeah. And the winter, that winter is unbelievably terrible. So the Dutch remember it as the Honger winter, the, the hunger winter. Yeah. And we are, we're sitting outside a, a, a flower shop and the Dutch are famous, famous for their gardens. And many people in Amsterdam were reduced to subsistence on, on kind of bulbs. Yeah. Um, Pretty grim the scale story, of the it? famine was terrible. And so coming out of the war, I think the impact of the war on the city that Amsterdam becomes in the post-war period, famously the great center of liberalism. Yeah. The city that, that John and Yoko choose to go to in 1968 to have their bed in. Of all the cities in the world, they choose Amsterdam for that. I think that the character of the city, the liberal city, is massively, massively informed by the horrors of what happened in the war. Well, before we get onto the liberal city, I'll just say we will definitely return to the story of Anne Frank because I think it's such a heartbreaking story, both in itself, but also as a way into discussing the experience of um, the Jewish population of the Netherlands and indeed of Europe in the Second World War. So I'm sure we'll return to that at a future point. But I know, Tom, you want, you're very keen to end the episode by talking about Amsterdam's transformation into the most liberal city arguably in the world, yep. the crucible of kind of 60s liberalism. Yep. And so now we will retrace our steps back towards the... The, the old heart of the, the city. The old heart of the city. And uh, Tom Holland will be venturing into the red light district. So let's go. Let's go. <laughs> so Tom, we've now walked back from the um, Portuguese synagogue into the, the old heart of the city. So the, where the place where Amsterdam was founded. And I think it's fair to say this is not the part of the city that I would choose to come on a family-friendly break. And yet, I mean, as you say, deeply historic. So the Oudekerke, the, uh, the oldest church in the, in the city, is just around the corner. Yes. And the street names, many of them are redolent of medieval Catholic piety. Yeah. So we're just standing next to uh, Grau Monniken Kloster, the, right. the cloister of the Grey Monks. That's your lovely Dutch again, very yeah. nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but the reason that you wouldn't uh, bring people on a family holiday is that this is the epicenter of the, the kind of the liberal Dutch attitudes to prostitution and yeah. to drugs, yeah. for which Amsterdam is probably, it's probably the most famous thing about Amsterdam. It is exactly. I mean, so more just, famous than Rembrandt, more famous than the canals. When you say you're going more to Amsterdam. More famous than the glories of 17th century culture. This is what people think of. And I just want to make it absolutely clear for the listeners. <laughs> I suggested that we uh, walk to look at some more merchants' houses. But Tom said, no, let's record the next bit opposite a massive neon sign saying well, sex palace. 
so so when I when I was um in the Brexit passport queue yesterday, and the um the guy behind the counter saw I was British and asked me in very suspicious tones what I was doing here because I think that so many British tourists come here on snag do's that yeah. there's a kind of move by the Dutch authorities. Tom, that's the wrong way, but you're a trifle old for a snag. Well, I said I'm here due to my love of 17th century Dutch culture. Okay. He waved me through, but Dominic, the reason that I wanted to bring you here, particularly you know coming off the the horrors that we were discussing. Yeah. by the Portuguese synagogue, is that I think that there is absolutely a case to be made that this kind of hyper-liberalism in attitudes towards sex and drugs and indeed to immigration is absolutely a reflection of the trauma that Amsterdam went through in the war. But I think you could also argue that the roots of 1960s liberalism and the, the aftermath of that go back even further because throughout these two episodes, we've been talking about this distinctive attitude in Amsterdam, yeah. whereby things are allowed to operate on the kind of the margins of the legal and the illegal. Yeah. So we've been talking about, you know, Catholics and Calvinist Amsterdam, various assorted religious minorities. And in a way, the attitudes to kind of the sex and drugs here in the red light district is a kind of legacy of that. So there's a continuity between this place, the sex palace that you very kinely brought me to, (laughs) and the Begeinhof, the beautiful kind of courtyard with the arms houses. Yeah. Because it's basically, we're going to turn a blind, you know, this thing about turning a blind eye to to ensure civic unity. Yeah. I mean, you would think that the Begeinhof, a place devoted to, you know, charity and sexual continence and a sex palace, you know, there could be no greater contrast. No yeah. great, but actually, I think they are expressions of something that is a kind of continuity in the civic culture. But I do think it, it is specifically a kind of determination to repudiate the legacy of of Nazism. Okay. So you see this very clearly in the kind of the radical approach to gay rights, which emerges almost immediately after the war. So in 1946, um, it's in Amsterdam that you get the world's first organization to advance gay rights. Um, 1964. The chairman of that organization goes on national TV and is the first kind of openly gay person to appear on Dutch TV. Right. And, you know, the the 60s across the world, there's a kind of cascade effect of of liberalization. But in the Netherlands, it's very, very radical to the degree that in 2000, the Netherlands becomes the first country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. Yeah, which I can remember. I mean, I remember at the time when that happened, there was a sense in the reporting in the international press that this was a sort of outlandish Dutch anomaly. But yeah. of course, no. the Dutch, as in so many of these post-war things, Absolutely. blazing a trail. So as in the 17th century, so in the, the 20th and 21st century, Amsterdam remains a city that is kind of setting the beat for the rest of the world. So I, I think you can also see very clearly a reaction to the horrors of Nazism in the kind of very liberal attitude to immigration. Right. So again, from the 70s onwards, increasing immigration to Amsterdam, as indeed across the Netherlands. The notorious coffee, well, notorious or famous, depending on your attitude. The coffee shops, marijuana, kind of like Catholic chapels in 17th century um, Amsterdam. Yeah, Marijuana isn't legal, but it's not banned if it's sold in private establishments. So in other words, you can't sell it on the streets, but you can sell it in coffee shops. Coffee shops, as they call them, yeah. Yeah. So this is your Begeinhof parallel again, right? Yes. That it's behind closed doors. Yes. So the Dutch who pioneered the idea of privacy... Yeah. So there's a distinct, a continuing distinction between private behavior and kind of public morality. Yes. Yes. And I guess the kind of the the ultimate parody, perhaps, of that is the women who advertise themselves behind glass windows. It's kind of 
absolute parody of that kind of idea of the right. the, the, the Dutch house, the privacy of the house, and the kind of interface between the privacy and the public. Yeah. And the other thing that that I think is again very kind of Dutch, very Amsterdam about the way that um, sex work is organised in Amsterdam, is that the women here are casting themselves not just as feminists mm -hmm. so hence it you know they would call themselves sex workers rather than prostitutes right but they are also very proud of themselves as members of of, of unions right so in the 80s there was a kind of a, an organization called the red thread that was an advocacy group lots belong to trade unions condoms are tax deductible all this kind <laughs> right. of I, I mean it's very very amsterdam i don't know if you saw harry and paul the um harry enfield and paul whitehouse and they have a brilliant kind of evocation of this. I think this idea of what Amsterdam is like abroad. It's um, Captain Stefan van der Hathgracht of the Amsterdam Police. Right. And it's uh, Paul Whitehouse. And it's, you know, it's they have handcuffs purely for sex games. And uh, Right. We're in danger of you doing the entire <laughs> sketch now, Tom. But I think it kind of sums up an idea of... Amsterdam as a anything goes kind of place. Which is the perception, certainly in Britain. I mean, it's obviously just a short hop from Britain. And that's why it's such a massive stag do destination is people go because they think of Amsterdam. Ironically, a Calvinist yeah. place, the place of privacy and gentility. Well, not gentility, I suppose, but modesty and decorum and, and, and self-discipline and all these things. But in Britain today, it is perceived as this hedonistic paradise. Absolutely. And I, I, I think, I mean, I think again, there is the, these kind of tensions that we've been exploring throughout the history of Amsterdam that you have, uh, you know, women behind glass windows advertising themselves naked. Mm -hmm. And they will, you know, if you're smoking in public where you shouldn't, they'll come out and scold you. Um, right. <laughs> so, have you so, put that to the test, Tom? I haven't. But the, but the, <laughs> you know, the laws are there to be obeyed. And, you know, if you get if you jaywalk in Amsterdam, you get in trouble. It's right. that kind of it's that kind of the, the laws are still there. It's not a kind of hedonist anything anything goes place. And I think the other thing, so expressive of this desire on the part of the Dutch authorities to to rein back on tourists coming here, stag parties and things, is the sense that liberalism in Amsterdam has been pushed to limits that even the most liberal city in the world doesn't actually like the end point because. Right. One of the things about legalizing prostitution and drugs in a world where generally they haven't been legalized mm. is that it enables, say, the coffee shops or the um, the red light district to become the front for criminal cartels. I was about to say, I mean, there's a definite sense of... Uh of seediness, frank, of sleaziness about this area, to be completely... Well, I mean, you know... And, and a sense in which... There's always a, a gray area where you're sliding into the world of organized crime. I mean, I think it's more than seediness. I think that, you know, it's foreign criminal gangs have used the Netherlands and, and certainly Amsterdam as centers for kind of mass trafficking of women, yeah. mass import of drugs. And that's why the authorities here are trying to kind of rein back on the Right, the kind of the giddy liberalism of an earlier age. So there you have the perfect example of the of the of the twenty first century tensions when you push liberalism to its ultimate extreme. Yes, and I think the most sensitive expression of that is in the dimension of immigration and on the relationship of Dutch liberalism to Islam, because many of the immigrants who've come to Amsterdam are Muslim, and that is obviously part of a tradition that goes right the way back to the Reformation. Yeah. Ooh, I think some... It's a Hindu, party is it's a Hindu. Um, So 
in the wake of the Holocaust, there was obviously an absolute determination not to in any way imply that there might be a tension between the frameworks of Dutch liberalism and Islam. And then suddenly, maybe in the wake of, of 9-11, that flipped because another expression of Dutch culture is the tradition of free speech. Yeah. And so you have, long before it happened in neighboring countries, you had very outspoken people talking from a kind of liberal perspective. So Pim von Toyn, who was a gay rights campaigner, said, I, I'm not anti-Muslim. I, I sleep with lots of Muslims. Right. I just don't like Islam. And he got assassinated, not by a Muslim, by a, I think it was by an animal rights protester. But then here in Amsterdam, notoriously, another leading liberal figure who was hostile to Islam was murdered and indeed almost decapitated. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was Theo van Gogh who was a descendant of, of Vincent van Gogh. And he made a film called Submission with a woman called Ayan Hirsi Ali, who was a Somali who'd come here and in a way become completely Dutch. I mean, readier to speak up in defense of liberalism as she saw it than, uh, than many um, people who'd been born in this country. Yeah. Hirsi Ali and, and van Gogh had made a film called Submission, which showed um, a young Muslim woman praying uh, dressed head to toe in Muslim robes, except that she had, had the middle of her body is exposed and it's covered with verses from the Quran. And as she prays, voiceovers are heard of various Muslim women talking about how they say that uh, the Quran and Quranic law has um, facilitated their oppression. Right. And this was, you know, landed as an explosion. So I think that that, that kind of tension between the dictates of liberalism and Islam, the anxieties about racism and anti-racism, that kind of knot, which has been one that people in other countries, including Britain, including America, including France, including Germany, have been trying to unpick over the past couple yeah. of decades. It was in Amsterdam that that was kind of first really stressed. And there's a sense in Amsterdam generally, correct me if I'm wrong, but that the, the city authorities have slightly turned away from the ultra-liberalism from the, of the yes, 1960s I think so. onwards. I think so. There's much more anxiety now in 2023 than at probably any point since the 1960s about, you know, the red light district, about drugs, about immigration, about all of these kinds of things. And Amsterdam, again, is, you could argue, a paradigm for what's happening in the Western world more generally, a turn against what people see as the extremes of kind of hyper-liberalism. Yeah, and I think that, 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 that the traditions of liberalism, of tolerance of globalization, of uh, hyper-capitalism that have been manifest in this city since at least the 17th century are still completely living traditions. And that is why what happens in Amsterdam reverberates across the world. It's full of canals and it's incredibly beautiful, but it's not Venice. It's not a museum piece. This is, this is a city that is still massively influential in the way that Europe and indeed the world thinks. And I think that that is what makes it such an incredible place to visit. Brilliant. You know, you really are not visiting a museum when you come here. So thank you, Tom. That was, a, dare I say, a panoramic tour de force. Oh, you're too uh, kind. A real sense of place, sense of the city, and a uh, sense of its, uh, the way in which it has served as this kind of microcosm of so many developments in uh, European, indeed, world history. Now, the good news for our listeners, Tom, is that WISE have created a travel guide to Amsterdam that includes many of the locations that you've talked about in today's episode. Although possibly not the, uh, the sex palace. That we're not the sex palace. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be very relieved to hear. So to learn more about how you can travel like a historian, you can travel like historian Tom Holland and yet still spend 
like a local. You can spend like a Dutchman or Dutchwoman. Visit wise.com slash rest is history or click the link in today's description. And on that note, Tom, we say thank you very much. Tom, you're free to go and enjoy the delights of Amsterdam. Thank you very much. I'm going home. And on that bombshell, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.